Well, welcome uh, to Plum Creek Chapel, and this is, as promised, a question and answer session that we uh, mentioned last week. So just to kind of put things in perspective, uh, we're in the midst of an extended study of the end times. What does the Bible say about uh, the end times, Christ's return and all of the associated events? Then some time ago, we kind of took a, a slight uh, deviation from that to focus in on the doctrine of eternal rewards. And that's kind of where we are now. We've still got more to say about that. Uh, and so we will uh, look forward to that starting up again next week as we continue that portion of our study. But we mentioned last week that it's been a while since we've done a Q&A session. So we wanted to dedicate uh, this uh, week to questions and answers. And uh, so in, ideally these would be questions about the end times. But as always, we open it up to anything. So any biblical or theological question uh, is fair game. Uh, we do have microphones this time. We're trying to do a better job of capturing the questions as best we can on the uh, live stream and the video. Uh, so if you have a question, raise your hand. We'll make sure a microphone gets passed to you. And then if you'd wait till you get the mic uh, to ask your question, uh, hold it real close to your mouth. I know if you're not used to speaking with a microphone, the natural instinct is to kind of hold it down here like you're afraid of it, like it's a cat or something. But um, <laughs> pretend like it's a nice, snuggly little puppy and hold it real close and, uh, and speak loudly into the microphone. So uh, before we begin, though, a couple of quick announcements. One of them I'm really excited about. Today, right here at Plum Creek Chapel at 2 o'clock, uh, Elbert County stands up as hosting an event. And I'm privileged to be uh, the keynote speaking on central bank digital currencies and the coming one world system. Now, if you've started reading uh, the new book, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, by the way, uh, we still have those out on the table. If you're interested, feel free to pick one up, one per family. If you've already gotten your free one, but you'd like another one, you can purchase it from Plum Creek Chapel. Just put your money in the little box there and make checks out to Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, but if you've already started reading Spirit of the Antichrist, you know that I have a section there in Chapter 2 about, trans, about the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab where I deal uh, with central bank digital currencies and the dangers and what's coming down the pike. Today's presentation will expand upon that. I'll have a little more detail, some more recent uh, data that, about that, and it's a pretty important topic. <clears throat> so I hope you can make it out. Uh, today at 2 o'clock for that event again right here. So, you know, head out after church, grab a bite to eat, and then come back at 2. If you can't make it, uh, which is fine, uh, we are going to record it, and I'll post it at the Not By Works website later today, so you can always go back and watch it uh, at, at that time. But, uh, yeah, very important uh, topic. It seems to be, uh, there's a lot in, that, in the book that is really, you know, covers the gamut of, of things uh, setting the stage for the coming one world system. But I think that's really one that's at the tip of the spear right now, and that's why they asked me to, uh, to speak on it. By the way, <laughs> a fair warning, if you haven't started reading the book yet, somebody who got the book, people that have ordered it are just starting to receive it over the last few days, and so I'm starting to get emails and texts from people, and someone sent me a, a picture of the book with their reading glasses and a bottle of Tums right next to it. So I think they were trying to send me a message that uh, this is not for the faint-hearted. But anyway, I uh, encourage you to pick that book up. So that's today at 2 o'clock. And then uh, this past week on Monday, we actually premiered the book on the David Fiorazzo stand-up for the Truth Show. And uh, so that's a great um, interview that we did, one hour. Uh, and it was called Spirit of the Antichrist, Cloud of Deception Darkening. So if you haven't listened to that, you can go to 
notbyworks.org, click on the podcast button and you'll see it there. Or wherever you listen to podcasts is fine. Just search for notbyworks.org. All right, I mean, search for Not By Works Ministries on the podcast site. All right, well, with that, let's, uh, let's begin uh, our question and answer time. You have a question? Wow, you are eager and ready to go. So that means, according to Jesus, we're going to take your question last at the end of the hour. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so let's bring a microphone up here to Paul. First shall be last, Jesus said. All right, real, real loud. And, and by the way, Paul, I have to say this just for you. I'm hoping for questions like, how many animals of each kind did Noah bring on the ark? You know, that kind of thing. So keep, keep that degree of, of difficulty in mind. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mark 16, 16, back to your yes. uh, uh, baptism uh, um, sermon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is speaking and he says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Which baptism is he speaking of at that time? Great question. I apologize. I did get your email, but it's been a crazy week. It's still flagged in my flagged to respond to, but now I can unflag it you because I'm going to answer it right now. So thank you for that. So the question is, last week uh, in the message, in our study of Acts, we were in Acts uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, and we talked about uh, baptism and all the different kinds of baptism and so forth. And so in Mark 16, verse 16, Jesus says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Now, two things about this. First of all, if you were here a few months ago when we did our midweek series and extended series on how to read and understand the Bible, you may remember that we talked about how, of course, the Bible was not written in English. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in three different languages. The New Testament was written from roughly 44 A.D. to 96 A.D. Uh, during that 50-year period in Greek. And, uh, you know, here we are 2,000 years later, and we have thousands upon thousands of manuscript fragments and even in some cases whole manuscripts of the New Testament that have been discovered by archaeologists. What we don't have is the original autograph, or the autograph as we call it, where you know Paul, liter or in this case Mark, literally put pen to paper and wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit his gospel. So as we study these manuscripts, we have to sort of use what's called the science of textual criticism uh, to identify what was most likely the original. Now, of all the manuscripts that we have, they agree on 98.5% of the content. But occasionally there's a scribal error, error, like you would have a typo when you're writing. Uh, maybe a word left out or a word misspelled, that kind of thing. As scribes would copy from the original. And so I say all that because the, the ending of Mark, starting in verse 9 all the way to verse 20, is widely disputed. We have no record of this until just very recently in the last few hundred years. Uh, so many scholars will, will say that this, verses 9 through 20 were not part of the inspired text. In fact, if you have a good study Bible, it'll have a note uh, that says that. In mine, I'm trying to look here, it says uh, verses 9 to 20 are bracketed in NU text, NU stands for Nestle Aland UBS or United Bible Society text as not original. So my particular view is that probably Mark's gospel ended at verse 8 
Uh, I think that's most likely. Um, some people will try to suggest that it doesn't end at verse 8, but the original ending of Mark's gospel was lost. And so later on, hundreds of years later, scribes added verses 9 to 20 to try to make it end better. That's not a, a plausible possibility for me because of the doctrine of preservation, that God's Word is guaranteed to be preserved. We will not lose it. It will last and never fade away until Christ comes back. So thinking or, or suggesting that somehow we don't know how Mark ended is not an option for me doctrinally. So to me, it either ended at verse 8 or it ended at verse 20. My preference is to think that it ended at verse 8. That said, let's assume that verses 9 through 20 are part of the original inspired text. Back to Paul's question, if you look at verse 16, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, uh, a, a parallelism uh, where the second line repeats the point of the first line in a negative. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but notice, he who does not believe will be condemned. It doesn't say he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. So the, the idea here is he who has believed, parenthesis, and is baptized having believed, uh, will be saved, but he who doesn't believe will be condemned. So it's not making baptism a requirement to enter into heaven. Another uh, rule of Bible study methods that comes into play here is we always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And there are 160 plus verses in the New Testament that condition eternal life solely upon faith alone in Christ alone. And indeed, as we talked about last week in the message, uh, baptism is not a requirement for eternal salvation. Paul said himself, God did not send me to baptize. Well, if baptism was necessary to get into heaven, then, then Paul's entire ministry was insufficient. And he wasn't giving the saving message. But indeed, you don't have to be baptized uh, to be saved. Uh, you have to be, leave the gospel to be saved. But water baptism is an, a, a, a next step, an important next step. And throughout the book of Acts, we always see when people got saved by faith, they were then baptized. It's an outward expression of an inward experience. So that would be my answer, that assuming this is part of the original text, it's not suggesting, as some people might try to say by taking it out of context, that you have to be baptized to be saved. Make sense? Yes. Uh, let's get a microphone. You pass it over to your right. So since we're on the subject of baptism, baptism. since we're on the subject of baptism, I got a little confused last week about what John the Baptist was actually doing and what was the baptism that his followers were under. Okay. okay, great question. So the question, and just in case it didn't get picked up, is about John the Baptist's baptism. Remember the whole point of the text last week was Paul meets some, some disciples of John the Baptist who had been baptized by John the Baptist but were not saved. So the question is, what was John the Baptist's baptism? Well, as we said last week, baptism always identifies the participant with some message, right? So John the Baptist's message was what? Anybody know? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he was, as prophesied in the Old Testament, the forerunner of Christ. And he came to say, hey, the kingdom is here. And indeed, in the person and work of Christ, the kingdom was here. As we know from reading the whole story, the nation of Israel did not receive the king, but instead rejected him. 
and crowned him with thorns and crucified him. So the king, the inauguration of the kingdom was delayed. And so we still are not living in the kingdom until Christ comes back a second time to inaugurate the kingdom. And that's what uh, the parable of the Minas in Luke 19 is all about, that the king, uh, he is the king, Jesus is the king. He is prophet, priest, king, and judge at all times because he's uh, immutable and he is, his attributes are eternal. But he's not functioning in those roles. He came as prophet. He is now our priest sitting at the right hand of God and interceding for us. He will return as king, and someday at the end of the millennium, he will sit on the great white throne as the final judge, prophet, priest, king, and judge. So John the Baptist's message was, hey, the king is here. You know, the kingdom has come. You're the generation of all the ones that it's going to you know, see the fulfillment of the messianic hope. As, as Isaiah the prophet uh, predicted, he would be born of a virgin. As Micah predicted, he would be born in Bethlehem. He is here, so repent. Now, who knows what repent means, by the way? We've talked about this a lot through the years. Change of mind, Change of mind right? So in Greek, uh, the word repent is the verb metanoeo. <laughs> it sounds like a funny word, but metanoeo. And in, and in the, the noun is metanoia, and that's a compound word, meta meaning again, a prefix, noeo, meaning to think. So literally to repent is to think again, to rethink or change your mind, as several of you said. So whenever you see, and by the way, the noun and verb forms combined in the New Testament are only used 58 times total, whereas the word believe is used, uh, uh, let's see, uh, 100, uh, 200 and I think it's 248 times, if I'm remembering right. So... Uh, whenever you see the word repent, and this I think is the essence of uh, uh, Ken's question, you should ask, change your mind about what? So John the Baptist is saying, repent or change your mind, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what he was asking them to change their mind about was related to the kingdom. So it probably has multiple nuances, but essentially it's change your mind about whatever you thought the kingdom was, because this is it, it has now come in humble form, not with fanfare and military show. It's just come in a little manger uh, in Bethlehem, just as the prophet said it would, and this is the Messiah. So it's just a general, you know, rethink your concept of the kingdom is essentially what he was saying. Make sense? Make a little more sense, I hope. <laughs> okay, do we have a mic on this side? We'll leave this one on this side, Judy, and then he's got another one for this side. That way it's easier to pass around. So the question is, you're talking about like in the kingdom, in the millennial phase of the kingdom on, on earth, that thousand year time? Well, or, or, because other than that, we're all in heaven. There's no sin. There's no, we're all perfect. So there won't be any need for judgment. Yeah. Are you helping me understand? 
Oh, are you talking about specifically at the judgment seat of Christ? Okay, yeah. So we see on the screen here the end times judgment. Eschatological just means end times. Eschaton is the Greek word for last things or end times. So eschatological means the study of end times judgments. And the judgment seat of Christ is only for believers, as you see there. Uh, and it is a judgment not to see who enters heaven or does not. Remember, Jesus said... Uh, if you believe in me, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. That is, you, you, the, you, the, your issue of eternal life is settled. There's never going to be a future judgment to, to determine whether you live eternally or die eternally. That issue is settled. But uh, we call this the judgment seat of Christ because that's the term Paul uses for this occasion when the earthly lives of believers are evaluated uh, to, as to their faithfulness and rewarded accordingly. Uh, Paul calls it the judgment seat of Christ because in the first century uh, Greco-Roman world they had a uh, common uh, thing where in the town square the political leaders, the governmental leaders would sit on a raised platform called a judgment seat and people would bring their disputes before them and then they would rule on them. And so Paul, just taking an everyday occurrence from life says look one day all of us are going to appear before the proverbial judgment seat of Christ where we will be evaluated prior to entering heaven again it's not a judgment as to entrance into heaven but a judgment of our uh, you know works uh, as to our faithfulness so your question is specifically believers that believe in abortion well, not abortion just basically just basic how would faulty theology be corrected in heaven? Well, it will be instantly corrected because once we're in heaven, we're no longer under the effects of sin. That's called the noetic effects of sin. Remember we said noeo means to think. So the curse of sin affects our ability to think, right? So that's kind of the excuse I give for liberals. You know, they're, they're sinners, and so that's just affecting their brain, right? Uh, but that curse of sin, the noetic effects of sin, will be gone in heaven. So, uh, so that's the way in which it will be changed. But at the judgment seat, yes, absolutely, believers will be held accountable for their false teaching, their false beliefs. Uh, James chapter 3 says, uh, Be not many teachers, because you'll, you'll be held to a higher standard. Uh, so yeah, it's a scary thing, especially for teachers, to know that... Uh, you know, we're going to be held accountable for every everything we've taught. That's why whenever I discover that I've said something in error, either because I was simply wrong in my understanding and have later come to realize, hey, I connected the dots incorrectly and now I'm correct, or maybe I just misspoke, which is more often the case. But whenever I'm, I'm I, it's called to my attention that I said something wrong, which you'll be glad to know is very, very rare. Okay. <laughs> But on the rare chance that it happens, I always like to come back and, and correct it and correct the record because, you know, I, I, I believe it's important to, to do that. So uh, I don't want to be, I don't want false, you know, something false hanging out there and then, you know, at the judgment seat, you know, being held accountable for it. So, yeah, I think our beliefs, our actions, our thoughts are all going to be taken into account. But ultimately, it's not about what we do, it's our motive. Remember we looked at 1 Corinthians 4 and it's about the counsels of the heart. So uh, people can do a lot of good things as Christians, 
But if they're doing them for the wrong motive, for example, to get noticed, to get um, a claim, a pat on the back, maybe money or you know whatever their ulterior motive might be to get something from the person they're doing it for, uh, I don't think those are rewardable acts. Um, no acts are punishable. Remember, we've talked about how you know Christians are never punished. We are disciplined by God on earth, uh, but and there won't be any discipline in heaven because we won't sin in heaven. But we're never punished. Punishment is only for unbelievers. I was trying to find that uh, that chart here, but anyway, um, but we will be either not rewarded or rewarded. And I believe if you do good things but for the wrong reason, that's not rewardable. And consequ- uh, conversely, if somebody has a pure motive and a pure heart and is and really is not in a position maybe to help someone else, you know, physically or financially or whatever it might be, but they're just genuinely praying for them, I think that's going to be rewarded. I've often said that I think uh, some of the people that will be at the front of the line, so to speak, at the Bema judgment are, you know, the, uh, the godly widows who spend a couple hours every day on their knees in their prayer closet praying for their pastor or praying for people, and you never would know it. You never know it. And, and maybe, just maybe, some of the people that are famous or out front or always you know, doing things and stuff, maybe they won't be rewarded because they're not doing it with the right motive. So does that help answer kind of what you're talking about? <laughs> All right, try one more time. So you asked about uh, do- doctrinal error or false beliefs. Will that be evaluated at the Bema? And yes, it will. Yeah, so as far as what, so the question is what if someone has a false belief, doesn't really act on it, but they just are holding a belief, what would happen to that Christian? Well, of course. Nothing's going to happen to that Christian relative to eternity. Their eternal destiny is secure because they're a child of God. They've been adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, etc. from the moment they believe. But that would be an example of something that wouldn't be rewarded. You know, you're not going to be rewarded for things that are not true, so if, that you believe. Okay, good. Uh, we got a couple over here, so let's uh, start up front with Mike, and then we'll work our way back to Nancy, and then I think it was it Sally that had her hand? Yeah, okay. It should be on. Oh. Hello. <laughs> okay, uh, this is a question about when we're, when we're actually in, in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> is free will still in play, and will we be able to make mistakes? So in heaven, is free will still in play? Yes. But will we be able to make mistakes? No. So I don't understand it, but uh, I've had this question a lot. And I even, I can remember as a kid, used to think about this. I I used to think about, okay, what happens when all is said and done and we've come full circle and we're back to the pre-fall new creation, the new heavens and the new earth? What if some fool bites the apple again and it starts all over again, right? Um, but uh, I think, at least according to the biblical record, that wouldn't fit because the, the time, space, and matter that we now know as, as life and the plan of the ages, Genesis to Revelation, 
seems to be the sum total of it. That not that this would happen again, but that this is it. This is it happened. God's going to solve it, and then His original creation, the way He intended it, will in fact go on. But it's really an argument from silence. I was just wondering because uh, you know, if you in this world we can with free will. We can, we're free to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Mistakes usually start out as lack of knowledge, lack of understanding of the circumstances. Um, but the other part of it is that we, you know, we are partially run by the old man. That's right. Yeah. So in heaven, with we don't have the old man, and we have access to all the facts, so to speak, maybe. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting conundrum because the free will implies you have the right to make mistakes and to try different things, and, and doesn't just because you try different things doesn't mean you're doing something malevolent or malicious. It's just you. Hey, I just had an idea. What if that works? That's yeah. So I think we need to define our terms. A, a, a lot of these questions, really all theological questions, come down to having a firm understanding of the ten basic categories of theology. In this case, we're talking about anthropology, biblical anthropology, not socialist, humanistic anthropology. But what does the Bible say about man? And before the fall, the Bible tells us God created man in his image. And we've talked about uh, that, you know, that aspect of, uh, you know, man being uh, created in the image of God. Let me put that chart up here, if you'll bear with me just a second, because I think this will help uh, with what we're talking about Um, but understanding you know who we are in Christ is is critical so uh, it's called the imago Dei that's Latin for image of God and so we've talked about what that means is that God created man according to an image Uh, so in other words Unlike everything else he created, God, remember Genesis 1.26 says, let us create man, so it's the triune God, established an image or a pattern according to which he made man. So he made man. So when it says, let us create man in our image, it's not saying let us create man as gods. You know, it's, it's uh, our image is the possessive our, meaning the image that God conceived of. Does that make sense? So it's like a... a uh, Builder saying, let us build this house according to this image, this plan, this blueprint. So God created a pattern uh, according to which he created man. And that pattern is what we call the Imago Dei. And that's the, all of the unique aspects. And the one you're talking about is the very first one there, volition, that man has. Now, we know the rest of the story. God, uh, man, used that volition to do exactly what God said not to do, to disobey. And that's what caused the fall of man, Romans 5.12, wherefore by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And so uh, then God had to redeem mankind. And we see that early on in the garden when God tells the serpent that someday the seed of the woman will crush your head. I always like reminding Satan of that, that from the very beginning he was doomed. It was a he had no chance, you know. Uh, so, so because the Imago Dei was pre-fall, this is part and parcel to who we are as human beings. When we get to heaven, we don't cease to become human beings. You know, a lot of people think 
because of Hollywood and stuff. Oh, you turn into angels and you get wings and you change your identity. No, no, you'll always be a human being. We'll look different because we won't have this mortal flesh and, and blood, but we will still be human. I'll still be JB. You'll still be Mike. We'll know each other, um, but uh, we will still have this free will. Now, the difference is presumably in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth, God's not going to set up a tree and tell us not to eat of it. We're just going to continue to serve Him faithfully so there won't be any opportunity, if you will, to disobey because you know that part of God's plan has, has been completed. But again, we don't really know a whole lot. We have two chapters essentially on the eternal state, a little bit in Isaiah and some references in the Old Testament. But primarily the new heaven and the new earth is just a sinless eternity where things the way God created them in the beginning and we messed them up are corrected and recreated in sinless perfection. So this image of God and man, by the way, is corrupted by sin so that um, now our sense of justice is warped. Boy, we've never seen that manifested then more in these days with you know, the woke culture. Uh, you know, our ability to think is corrupted you know when you especially the older we get you know you you can't remember something and you know I used to have really a sharp memory and I could in my mind have lists of things and if I'm driving I, I would think I, when I get to my office I need to remember to write these things down but then I nowadays I just I can't remember things very well and that's part of the corruption of sin uh, volition we make choices today based on false beliefs and and false worldviews and uh, again, impure motives and things. So all of that is corrupted, but uh, not probably not a very satisfying answer, but I think we can safely assume that God is not going to let things get out of hand when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. Nancy. Okay, I had a question during the millennium. So you've got Christ ruling and reign. You have... Um, you know, us in our transformed, transformed. Um, you have sacrifices in the temple. So I got to wondering about, would people be sitting around doing Bible study? I mean, you've got, you've got Christ ruling really and right there. You've got people that have already kind of, you know, <laughs> gotten to the, you know, their transformed bodies and all of that. And you've got, you know, temple sacrifices going on. You've got people that, you know, that will be not believers, you know. At some point, you know. I mean, would... JB's wandering around up here. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm a believer. <laughs> yeah, because we're kind of like, you know, we're at the end of the Bible. Yeah. And we're almost to the eternal state. So, will there be Bible study, for example? Yeah, we actually have, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, um, just to put it in context, the question relates to the millennium. So, you can see on the far right, in the bracket, I've got the Messianic Kingdom at, at the bottom there. That is beginning when Christ returns, effectively. There's that 75-day gap that we read about, but... Um, but effectively, the kingdom is inaugurated, and then the first 1,000 years is on this present earth. Okay, It's called the millennium. Revelation 20 talks about that. But then God destroys this present earth and the heavenlies and recreates them in sinless perfection, and the kingdom continues 
for all of eternity. That's why you see an arrow at the end of the black line, not a dot. You know, the kingdom goes on. So her question is about that first part of the Messianic kingdom, the thousand years, and kind of the nature of things during that time. So the, specifically thinking about studying the Bible during that time, I suppose we, we, we could or might, but I think it's helpful to understand the doctrine of revelation. And by that, I don't mean the book of revelation by that name, but the doctrine of revelation. Revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It means unveiling. And God has unveiled himself to mankind through various ways throughout history. So he unveiled himself through uh, major events like the flood and uh, other things like the uh, exodus. Anytime God supernaturally intervenes into the affairs of mankind, he's, uh, he's you know, revealing himself, let's say unveiling himself. Um, he unveils himself through nature. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. He unveils himself through providence, you know, the fact that the sun's going to rise every day or whatever, whatever it does. That's a metaphor for the sun shows up. <laughs> uh, and, and then he, he, he most notably unveiled himself through the incarnation. When Jesus Christ came uh, to earth, born of a virgin, left the realm of time, space, and matter. And remember, the writer of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, this is Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is where he is today. So that's the greatest uh, unveiling, as it were, of, of God. But then we also have his special revelation in the written word. This is what the Bible calls the word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And it is this book that was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as holy men of God wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, meaning that what, when the quill hit the sheepskin, what was written was perfect, infallible, and errant, incapable of error. And that was what was revealed over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors on three different continents in three different languages. So to the extent that once we get out of this present age into you know, the tribulation and then the millennium, God is unveiling himself in different ways. Remember we talked about in Revelation, I think it's, um, I want to say it's 14 or Wherever the little scroll is, uh, I might have that handy here. Uh, uh, let's see. Where John is, you know, shown this little book, and it has things that he can't even describe. Let's see, where was it? Oh, 10, chapter 10. And then he's told to eat the book and not reveal it. So there are things that are going to happen during the tribulation, for example, is my point, that we don't even know about yet. So as we make our charts and we teach, as I love to do about... The, the, the seven-year wrath of God, the tribulation, there, there's things we don't even know about yet. God's going to unveil them in due time. And I think certainly that's true after Christ comes back, the greatest revelation of God sits on the throne. That's why the last book of the Bible is called The Revelation, because it's the culmination of the story. By the end of the, that book, Christ comes back in incredible glory, takes the throne, and rules the kingdom. 
Uh, and sometimes people call the last book Revelations. That's just a misnomer. That's, it's not what it's called. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, so all that to say, Nancy, I, I don't know that there would be a need for us to study the Word because we'll have more knowledge and more revelation than we've ever had. But could we study it? Absolutely, we could. We certainly could. Yeah, so the people that are unsaved, remember eventually, over time, people are going to be born in the millennium, and those people, Ephesians 2.1, will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, and like everyone, will have to believe in Jesus to be saved. So those people will, you know, the evangelistic enterprise, people will be telling them about uh, Jesus, and supposedly, I mean, or conceivably, we could use the Bible, and we could take them through clear teaching that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. But it's more likely going to be the case, it seems to me, that when I come across an unbeliever, and, and again, just to master the point, because I know we're always picking up new people, it, when Christ comes back after the tribulation, he tells us in his own words that at that point, everyone on earth, and, and we won't be there, we will be coming back with him. We will have already been rescued seven years prior at the rapture. But for those that survived the tribulation, they weren't martyred or killed or you know, by all the devastation, they will fall into one of two camps. They're either saved or not saved, like everybody at any time in, in history. And Jesus tells us in his own words that when he comes back to start the kingdom, all of the unbelievers are going to be cast into the everlasting fire and all the believers are going to get into the kingdom. So at the beginning of the kingdom, the beginning of that bracket that you see in purple, everybody on earth is a believer. But as they procreate and children are born and grow up, those children are going to need to be saved. So that's the people you're talking about. So the, the evangelistic enterprise, to me it seems, will be simpler in that instead of pointing people back 2,000 years to the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins, you'll just point to Jesus sitting over there in the White House in Jerusalem giving the State of the World Address every January. And you'll say, if you'll believe in that guy you can be saved. If you'll believe in Him, He's the King of the world. He's the God in the flesh. He's the Savior of all mankind. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. He offers to you the free gift of eternal life. And if you'll believe in Him, He'll save you. So, I mean, again, we don't really know. Conceivably, people could point to the revelation of God in God's Word. But since we will have a greater revelation right there before us in living color, I think people will just point to Him. Trust in Him and you'll be saved. So I know Sally has a question, but Gary had a question too. No, that was Nancy clarified last night. Okay, all right. Sally. Um, I am curious about the arrows. Uh, do they, um, are they genetically Jews? And how do they feel about that? Hmm. I uh, the question is about the Arabs. Are they genetically uh, Jews, I suppose some of them could be. I mean, it's after all these hundreds of years, it's hard for us humanly to necessarily trace it, although there are some people that claim there's, there's a group that has traced it. But certainly God knows. God knows whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Right. Right. So, well, Abraham's sons, Isaac and Jacob, kind of split. It's the sons of Jacob that are Jews. The sons of Isaac are, are not. Because Jacob is Israel. Jacob's the one 
who had, was called, his name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Isaac was a different. But through blood, aren't they genetically connected to Abraham? Well, sure, and, and, and through blood, we're all connected to Adam. So it's one blood, but in terms of the promises of God, and I'm saying Isaac, but I mean Ishmael, thank you. Um, so, but, but in terms of God's plan and God's promises, it's only those that are descendants of Jacob that are part of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, back here and then up to you. Yep. If you'll pass it back. I, I have one that's um, dealing with Adam and Eve. And um, God said don't eat from the tree of life. So, well, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, yes. Um, but that was before Eve was made, right? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think that was the command that was given to both of them. Because remember, Genesis 1 kind of gives the overview. Genesis 2 gives the details of the creation account. So at the end of chapter 1, God saw everything that he had created, um, and it was very good. And then, let's see. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, the verse 17 is when he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then 18, he says, then he created Eve. So yeah, you're right. I guess my question is, is uh, it might be a two-part question. So, so I'm sorry we must limit questions to one. <laughs> Especially since you threw me for a loop with your first part. You've, you have lost the right to ask a second part. So she just automatically has the knowledge? No, I'm sure Adam told her. Yeah. So then, would it be fair to say that um, she was deceived and Adam sinned? Then? Yeah, and that's what the New Testament tells us, actually. Yeah. Okay, so in that, so that has something. Um, I guess I'm just wondering about when it talks about don't be deceived, like in the future, mm -hmm. be careful. Is there any relation to that? Is there a what to that? Any, any relation to that? Yeah, I mean, the New Testament talks about how the woman was the one deceived, but it also talks about how Adam brought sin into the whole world because of his sin. So I think there's a distinction without a difference ultimately there. I think uh, a lot of people make a big deal about that, and I think there is some good fodder there for some theological arrangement. But at the end of the day, it was Adam and Eve that were banished from the garden. It was Adam and Eve that you know were under the curse of sin now, and that their descendants, which is us, are all you know, under the curse of sin. Uh, but as far as the mechanics of deception, I get into that in Volume 1 of Spirit of the Antichrist. We're going back to that encounter in Genesis 3 between the serpent and the woman, and then the man, you know, he's, he's involved in that too, Adam, and he tries to make an excuse, and, you know, uh, he's, uh, forget what he says here, but it's somewhere in here. So I think they're both guilty, obviously, and both accountable. But the, the, the mechanism of deception was, you know, questioning the truth, uh, suggesting an alternative truth, um, you know, putting words in God's mouth, those things that I talk about in Volume 1. So, is that, was there more? that What were you kind of thinking about the issue of deception in particular? Uh, I was just trying to figure out, for one, yeah, she didn't know. 
uh, no, I'm. I, I, Yeah, no, we, we, I think the text very clearly implies that she knew. Um, and because the New Testament comes ac across later and says the woman was deceived. If she didn't know, she couldn't have been deceived. So we can say with 100% certainty that she knew. Well, Satan told her he lied. He, what do you mean Satan told her? He says you shouldn't eat from the tree. Yeah, so Satan lied from the very beginning. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's not what God said. So if she didn't know what God had said, then she would have no way to be deceived. But he never did articulate accurately what God said. He was spinning it and deceiving her. So, yeah. Boy, the time goes by so fast. How many of you would like to cancel church and continue the Q&A? I get veto power, but raise your hand if you want to do that. Okay, I veto it. We're going to have church. J.D., with all the things that you see going on in the world, what grieves you the most? What grieves me the most? Oh, With all that's going on in the world, what grieves me the most? Um, well, I dedicated the second volume um, after much prayer and, and consulting with Wendy. We really talked and prayed about it and I dedicated it to all those who have been victims of the Luciferians for the last 6,000 years whether killed which millions upon millions have been killed or you know severely persecuted and so what grieves me the most are chapters like the uh, uh, perversion and all of the satanic ritual abuse and child sacrifice and child abuse that's going on the underground child sex rings um, knowing that right now, more than ever before in human history, we're seeing people s actually suffering unspeakable crimes at the hands of these evil accomplices of Satan trying to usher in the one world order. And we go through our day in our nice little world, aware, especially if we're believers, aware of the spiritual warfare, but I think we really have no idea how much it has increased. I saw an interview just recently with a child actor from uh, Hollywood who has come out to say, you know, you guys have no idea what they're doing behind the scenes in Hollywood, you know. So uh, that grieves me knowing that, you know, we're worried about CBDCs and food and heating oil in the winter and inflation and stagflation and all that, but there are people that are really, uh, I mean, they're just, they're locked up right now and, and being tortured you know so that's why we need to if the Lord's going to tarry his coming we need to expose this and get as many people to wake up to it as possible um, you know someone sent me a picture of my volume two with reading glasses next to it and a bottle of Tums <laughs> and they had started reading it and they said boy this is not not easy and it's not but we need people to to read it. We need people to get that message because lives are at stake. So I say that at the end of the book, I talk about one of the reasons all this matters is that it's a matter of life and death, and for many people it is. So that's what grieves me is that innocent people, especially children, are, are suffering. Um, so, all right, well, let's, uh, 
One more. One more. I can't turn you down. You're so nice. I may regret it, but... Yeah, contemplative prayer that it's actually been around for well, you know, millennia, but in 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 its modern form, it's been around for several decades. Dallas Willard and uh, Gene Peterson and that whole group. Uh, but essentially, it's it's it comes out of the mystical Eastern mysticism. It's a New Age concept. You know, prayer is not that complicated. Prayer is talking to God. We don't have to transform ourselves into some type of transfixed state and you know, like yoga, and somehow transcendentally meditate on God. It's a conscious thing that we do when we pray. And so God can speak to us in subconscious ways. We've talked about that, dreams and other, just God can bring through the Holy Spirit things to your mind and all that. But when we're talking to Him, it's a conscious, deliberate, intentional letting our requests be made known to God. So you don't see that type of... uh, so-called contemplative or transcendental prayer in Scripture as a positive thing. You see it as a negative in the Old Testament. Um, Some people get the the notion from uh, Romans 8 where it talks about when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit Himself prays with utterances that cannot be uh, understood or I forget the exact term. But that's not talking about us. That's talking about the Spirit. That thankfully we have a Holy Spirit, a Comforter, who when we are just at our wit's end and don't even know what to pray before the Lord, the Spirit of God prays on our behalf. That's not us uttering things that you know can't be known. So, yeah, it's a, not a good thing. I would be cautious of any of those authors uh, that are promoting that type of mystical thing. Well, I do know that there's two, um, Beth Moore and Priscilla Shire, both of them are Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I've come to believe that pretty much any mainstream evangelical man or woman who reaches a pinnacle of notoriety and popularity, I hate to sound cynical, but chances are they're controlled, you know, uh, or mis, misled. But, uh, you know, if you, ha- if you draw clear lines of distinction and, and stick firm to the Word of God, you're not likely to gather a huge following. You know, you've got to jump on bandwagons. And that's a perfect segue to what we're going to be talking about in Acts today, of the mob mentality with the big riot in Ephesus. So uh, we want to be cautious about who we hitch our, hitch our wagon to. So let's uh, dismiss. We'll come back together here in the room at, let's say, 10.05, give you about 10 minutes here. Uh, the live stream of the service won't begin until I get up to preach. Usually that's around... 1025 to 1035 Mountain Time. So you guys live streaming can rejoin us at that time.